I have a number of times in these lectures talked about the economic landscape of the UK. And I've talked about work done by uh, a, a, a predecessor at the National Institute, uh, Christopher Dow, who wrote a magisterial book on the management of the British economy in the 1960s. And he was actually the first one to make the point that stop-go policies, as they've come to become to be known, may have in fact been problematic for our assessing the longer-term problems of the UK economy. And I, I've referred to this book a number of times, but I just want to point to the last sentence there. As far as internal conditions are concerned then, budgetary and monetary policy failed to be stabilising, he said, about this period, and must, on the contrary, be regarded as being positively destabilising. And perhaps a Lear motif of British policy over this long period is exactly that. We have monetary and fiscal policies that have concentrated on the short run, and I think I'm coming to the point to which I want to argue that I think they have had deleterious consequences for long-run outcomes for the average person in this country. And time has come, I think, to address these questions again, particularly in light of the referendum held just slightly under two years ago that will most probably cause us to leave the European Union at some point in the future. That doesn't sound like a very definite statement, does it? But that's how I feel about the whole thing. I've also had a chance to read or reread um, classic papers in economics, one in particular by Robert Solow, who's a Nobel Prize winner. And he makes this point that I'm going to refer to in a minute through a graph. I'll let you read it rather than read it all about. But the point of this is he says that there are many ways to get to your destination. It's not always obvious what combination of monetary and fiscal policy you should choose, what combination of taxes, indeed what your objectives may be. We've had a monetary policy in the UK, rightly, I think, concentrated on price stability for the last quarter of a century. But have we, in the combination of tools we've had at our disposal, actually targeted things like long-run growth outcomes in a way we might have done and led to different policy choices than we have had? And I think the nexus of policies that we've ended up on in terms of monetary, fiscal and financial policy would lead us to consider an alternate mix from now, and that's the case I want to try and put to you in this lecture today. Now, when Bob, Luca, uh, Bob Solo, a Freudian slip, when Bob Solo was talking about different ways to get to full employment using different mixes, he also has in mind that there are actually bad and good outcomes. And one way of illustrating this, and those of you who've come to my lectures will know I'm fond of a graph or two. Uh, I apologise, that's my occupational hazard as an economist. But this omega that you're seeing there is, is think of that as a vector of the economy, um, a vector of the economy that encompasses output, inflation, interest rates, money supply, the exchange rate, unemployment, wages, hours worked, investment, and exports. All the things that you hear people talk about on the news. Imagine that's just some vector. And it's moving from one period to the next, T1, T minus 1 to T, with some law of motion that's describing how each variable moves to the other variable from period to period. In an equilibrium, omega t equals omega t minus 1. So that's a 45-degree line. That's the diagonal line going up from left to right. And that, that's what we tend to call in economics a steady state, something from which there's no tendency to move away from, an equilibrium of some sort. Now, the equilibrium, or the equilibria here, will be described by the curly line, which is a technical expression, um, 
And that's telling you how sigma in the next period is responding to sigma in this period. And when sigma is in, in above my equilibrium line, there is momentum for sigma to increase period on period. And when sigma is below that 45 degree diagonal line, there's momentum for sigma to reduce period to period. So I'll leave you to examine this in your own time. What you can see is that there's a good equilibrium up at the top. The top right there is, a, is what we call a good equilibrium there. If we're slightly below equilibrium, there'll be some dynamics pushing sigma t up towards that good point. And if we're slightly above it, there'll be some dynamics pushing it back again. That's what we tend to think of as the business cycle around a good equilibrium. And we need to understand the law of motion and the way these variables that I've described are mapped onto each other period to period. Now, they're mapped onto each other in economy as a result of the decisions that we make, the constraints that we observe, the endowments that we have, and the choices that we make at firms and households, and, critically, as a function of our beliefs about the efficacy of policy, the way monetary and fiscal policy operates as well is always critical in determining the stability of this system and the rate at which it converges to its equilibrium. And yet there's more. Actually, you can see that with large enough set of negative shocks, you could trickle, and I use the word after some thought, all the way down to the bad equilibrium. And if you go below that unstable equilibrium in the middle, you could hit this bad equilibrium, particularly if policy is not paying attention. And once you're there, because it's an equilibrium, you can get stuck there for a very long time. And it's my contention that this might be exactly the form of equilibrium that we found ourselves in after the financial crisis. And it's one that has not been, um, I think, properly accepted by policymakers who are imagining that they're more facing some temporary perturbation of the economy around that good equilibrium. And if we wait long enough, we'll get back again. Now, let me tell you, the ideas I'm explaining here are not terribly new or profound. I mean, they may be profound, but they're not terribly new. They're very much related to the ideas of Maynard Keynes and other people who we might think or think of trying to help this economy get back to that good equilibrium. Now, what evidence can I bring to bear for this heroic accusation of this economy that is far from equilibrium? Well, the productivity puzzle, as it's called by many, I've started calling a positivity trap as of the last couple of weeks. Fellow uh, uh, colleagues of mine at the Institute would know that I've been trapping all over the place and talking about it, etc. The productivity puzzle is that if we measure labour productivity on a trend line, it looks like over the large period of post-industrialisation, particularly since World War II, it tended to grow at around 1.5% to 2% a year in most advanced economies. And certainly the slope of the line prior to 2007 would suggest the same. What's happened after the financial crisis is that ha that has turned into very little growth at all. And if anything, productivity, labour productivity has gone sideways over that period. And we can measure what's known as the productivity gap before we start talking about the trap. I will not be developing poetry in real time here. I'm going to stop there. But the gap, if we measure it for the G6, that's the other economies, uh, advanced economies, excluding the UK, is a fraction under 10%. But for the UK, if we draw the same um, trend line, that's the red dotted line, and look at the gap, it's nearer 20%. So... It's a, whatever the problem is globally, the UK would seem to have a larger one and therefore can benefit even more from concerted and coordinated responses to what I'm calling a productivity 
trap. Now, um, we can go actually further back in time, where if we go further back before the period of productivity trap after 2007, and this is a measure of GDP per hour work, so just imagine any worker working for an hour, we're just measuring how much final output they produce. Um, and we do it for the G6, and we do it for the UK, and we can see that, in fact, in the UK, we've lagged behind for a very long time. I'll go back to 1970, which sadly was a couple of years after I was born. I wish I could say it was a couple of years before I was born. A couple of years after I was born, we've been behind all the way through. So I would argue we've been in a trap. I'm thinking of Bob Geldof here for some reason, but anyway, I'll talk about that another time. The UK fallen behind um, and stayed behind in this gap persistently. As you can see, from around 20 years ago, it was a small improvement or a significant improvement for a while. And um, if we take the average of the euro area, which is 17 countries, including Eastern European countries as well, um, that we can see that there had been some pulling away from the euro area prior to the financial crisis. But to all intents and purposes, that they have now caught up with us and are about the same level of productivity per hour, or output per hour word, which is our measure of productivity. This is an aggregate number. There's a large debate out there as to what contributes to this aggregate number. Imagine decomposing this aggregate number into a large number of firms and ordering them from the most productive to the least productive. And there's an active debate about there whether the average is being drawn down by having an abnormally large number of firms who aren't productive, or is it being drawn down because in a dynamic economy, productivity is pulled up by the most productive firms, and since the financial crisis, they have not been able to be as productive as they were before. Your diagnosis of what's causing the productivity puzzle will, of course, lead to a set of answers. Our provisional response is it's very much more the latter than the former. That means the firms that are at the frontier driving up the average levels of productivity have not performed as well as we might have anticipated prior to the financial crisis. If that is the case, there's some very difficult questions to answer as to why. Is it that their export uh, destinations have failed? Is it that they've failed to innovate? Might financial frictions have caused them to be too conservative in innovating and continuing their process at the frontier? These are the questions that I think we would like to address. We can go further into policy. I've talked about the possibility of two equilibria. I'm not going to explain this chart again. It was explained in a, a lecture earlier. But the normal state of affairs is a positive rate of inflation, and the um, y-axis here is the policy rate or bank rate, which is positive on average 4 to 5%. And that is what we might call A, would be good times, corresponding not a little to the one that I just described um, with that rather complex diagram some moments ago. But with a large enough set of shocks, we might end up in this bad equilibrium where interest rates are low for a, a, a very long time and there are deflationary tendencies. Whether there's inflation or not is a secondary matter, but if we expect there to be a deflation, that might be sufficient to bring about this equilibrium. And we might argue that interest rates have entered this long period of doldrums um, for the 21 or so years of the existence of the MPC. Interest rates have been 
all but at the lower zero bound for about 40% of the time. So what seems to be a, a temporary movement seems to have been a different form of equilibrium. And if we move away from inflation and look at output, I've simply replaced the x-axis here with output. It looks a little bit like GDP has, um, in the, in certainly in range, this is not GDP per head, so it's not productivity, it's simply output. And output in the last 10 or so years has been mostly driven by increasing inputs rather than increasing productivity, which is the ratio of outputs to inputs. And the range of output has essentially been somewhere between half a percent and two percent. And if we compare that to the pre-crisis range of output, which was one to four percent, and that was a world in which interest rates were, let me say, more normal than they have been subsequently. Now, what are the causes of all of this? Well, I'm not... Causality is a very difficult thing, so I'm going to say what can we also observe rather than what we can cause. Meanwhile, I have a quick sip of water. In the production function, when we think about output, we think about accumulated capital, labour inputs, and total factor productivity. Capital increases by the quantity of investment that we put in the economy, minus any depreciation. So a key driver of capital, which is input in production, is the level of investment. And if we look at investment in the UK, compared to our G7 partners, it's not a great story. At the bottom of the class, um, for a very long time. This has meant we haven't augmented the capital stock in the same way, therefore hasn't been driving the production of output to the same degree that we have seen in our trading partners. Let me just make a quick point that in Japan, of course, there was probably overinvestment. So the period of slowdown we saw in the 90s was the investment falling um, from high levels to bring the capital stock down. We've almost had the opposite problem. Insufficient investment that hasn't been raising the capital stock. So what are the constituents of investment? Well, of course, there's firm investment. That's a decision that um, the private sector will take, and they will tend to invest in proportion to expected profits, in inverse proportion to uncertainty, and dependent on financial conditions, how easy it is for them to raise finance that might be reflected in interest rates, or the buoyancy of the stock market. These are the kind of things that we think uh, affect investment, and they seem to do pretty well in explaining investment equations. But in a, a key and alternate part of investment is public investment, that which is undertaken by the state. And over the last quarter of century or so, I want to draw your attention to that public investment has been around 2 to slightly under 3% a year. In other economies, it's been higher. And public investment, if we look at it, is very much the moving average of the primary deficit that we've had on the fiscal position. So the fiscal position has varied, nearly went up to 10% immediately after the financial crisis, and is, in primary terms, that's before we pay interest on debt, not far off zero at the moment. And so it's been volatile. But in the middle of it all, public investment has been in the stable range of 2 to 3%. So I think one ought to consider raising the level of public investment, if appropriate investment opportunities can be found, that give an appropriate social return. We don't want to create um, strings of um, things that people don't really want. But, but also to bear in mind that using the deficit to fund investment projects might be a very sensible thing to do. And in fact, when we look at this very long run, it's probably 
um, de facto what we've been doing anyway, but with more volatility in the primary deficit than we might have admitted. What are the other things that I ought to observe? Well, we look at R&D. The black line is G7 average XUK. Um, in the last 35 years or so, that's climbed it, uh, with our trading partners. In the UK, it's um, fallen, the opposite of climbed. Um, and they're almost negatively correlated if you look at them. So the UK has fallen to under 1.8%. And for our trading partners, on average, it's gone up to 2.4%. R&D, whether it is private or public, there seem to be positive synergies between the two. If we do more public R&D, it helps private R&D. Um, and, and in many studies, it's shown to be a, a very good driver of productivity per head. And that is a target I think we ought to be aiming for through public um, investment and also incentives for the private sector. When we have low levels of productivity, what does it mean for the regions? Well, I think it's important to remember that even if we have average levels of productivity that are low in the UK, many areas are comparable with our trading partners. London and the South East, if we have an index of 100 for the country in 2015, are uh, somewhere above the average at around 130 and around 110. And these are comparable to the averages we see in other countries. And indeed, if we look at productivity at the city level, many of our cities have productivities way above the UK average. But the problem of averages, of course, that many places would therefore also be below. And if we're going to target R&D and public investment, we have the following puzzle to solve. Do we support the places that are behind to bring them up? Or do we help those who are ahead climb even further ahead? The work I was alluding to some moments ago on firms would suggest that we need to help those who are at the frontier, not those who are behind. But this is a difficult and complex question. And I don't think there's been sufficient thinking of it, about it in the policy arena um, in the UK, particularly in the last two years, where we've been dominated by another set of events. What does this all mean? Well, the capital output ratio has been falling in the UK. This is simply saying I got a level of capital in the economy, and um, the higher the level of capital is uh, in the economy, it tends to mean there's a higher level of labour productivity. But what we've seen is through successive periods of low investment is that there's not a lot of evidence that the capital output ratio has been rising as it has in other economies. Now, to be fair, um, it could very well be that um, we're not measuring capital very well at all. There may be all forms of intangible capital that we're mismeasuring, and that might be responsible to an extent for what falls looks like a fall in capital. But even if that's the case, I want to say there's not strong evidence that our capital-to-output ratio has been increasing in line with other countries. And if you were a very much an optimist you might argue that, well, these falls in capital output ratio may mean there's an investment boom just around the corner because we're bound to return to the mean. Um, I'll leave you to stand on the train platform and wait for another train if you believe in that. What does that mean for the growth in capital that every employee has at his or her disposal when they go to work? Well, this measures the growth in capital per employee um, over the last 20 years or so, and we've seen... In the early period, that catch-up period of productivity I talked about till the financial crisis, there was indeed uh, some growth in capital employed per employee. Um, 
The spike in 2008 and 9, it won't surprise you to learn, was because the denominator fell. The number of people in work fell, so there's a spike. That's the reason. I don't think there was a massive investment boom at that time. Um, and subsequently, one of the aspects of this recovery has been a very large increase in labour supply. And that hasn't been met with a consummate increase in capital employed, which means that the net growth of capital employed per employee has been falling for the last four or five years, further contributing to the productivity puzzle. And that, again, that very well could be the firms that we'd otherwise expect to be at the front of the distribution, not at the back. What are the other consequences um, of um, productivity that is uneven, large regional differences? Well, we can look at something that's close to many of our hearts, or should be, house prices. The um, X, in, X index, I'm going to see how this it actually can, actually, it seems like it can, good. The X index here shows increase in house prices over a 15-year period, so we've got a just a fraction under 120%, this is, this is London. And on the y-axis here, I've simply taken that productivity number that we saw earlier on and taken away the average. So you can see London is about 30% below average and a part of the region, that, a country that I won't mention, I don't want to embarrass it in case someone's here, you can see is, is up to 20% below average. But it, it turns out to be a fairly good sorter, that level of productivity for the increase in house prices that we've seen. And the question there is whether the increase in house prices reflects the relative productivity because it's reflecting relative income, or is it causing productivity? Is it, is it causing some uh, rigidities in the economy to stop productivity flowing? You can imagine a world in which, well, let's suppose productivity is, is lower here, but maybe it's cheaper to locate there, Maybe we ought to be removing resources there, and we're not doing it in the way we might do because these economies are in that bad equilibrium I was talking about early on. They're not feeling that growth in the same way. Perhaps some thought given to these things might matter. But the fact that the performance of house prices is so closely linked to productivity, this is just a snapshot of productivity in 2015, and this is a total increase in house prices over a 15-year period. So the two observations are not related to each other in any way. There seems to be some relatively tight link between the two. And if we start to think about addressing capacity constraints in the economy, there will be beneficial effects. For those of us who think that having more affordable housing is a good idea, there's also a good relationship between, on the y-axis here, completions relative to population. So for the part of the country in which completions, that means home building compared to population was high, the house price increase was less. And for where completions were low relative to population, the house price increase was considerably more. So addressing the capacity constraints through the proper building of infrastructure would help even out these problems. It helped even out these problems and also helped us to address the productivity problems, we'd start to think of a way ahead for the economy that was more profound. And why do I argue that the quality of infrastructure is poor? Well, we can look at a number of measures. The Infrastructure Commission has done um, important work in this, but if I pick up anything fairly simple out there in, 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 in uh, the research sphere and I look at the Global Competitiveness Report, year after year, time and time again, uh, the perceived quality of our infrastructure 
And that's the quality of the spending, not the quantity. And the quality of our roads and rails is behind uh, that of our, most of our advanced country partners. And for those of you who have to use the trains regularly at the moment, you won't need a lot of persuading as to the problems that we're facing in the UK at present. So what is our public spending on infrastructure? Again, that's skewed very much towards London and um, some of the regions which were devolving power. So the ones that have been able to have a voice have been able to skew public infrastructure spending in their direction. But in other parts of the country, the southwest, we're seeing some 40% of the expenditure that we see in London. And if these places are to be connected and the quality of their infrastructure is to be improved, some thought is going to be have to be given to the redistribution of some of these bits of expenditure. The blue line at the end is simply a comparator to say what we spend on average um, per head across the country on the NHS. So these order of magnitudes are similar, £2,000 for the NHS, some £5,000 per person on infrastructure in London. Um, maybe there's a trade-off between the two as well. Now, why does it... I want to now um, go on um, before um, going on to this chart to explain briefly what I've said so far. I've tried to make the case that we fall into a low productivity trap. I've tried to persuade you that this is a, an equilibrium either in average or for certain regions that we would not like to be in if we could avoid it. I've tried to persuade you that one of the reasons that's driving this is the low level of capital in the economy and the low level of investment that's affecting our measures of labour productivity. And that we would like to do something about it and I'm suggesting that investment is the key. I think that's my story so far in two or three sentences. How do we get up the level of investment? Well, here I'm drawing a simple um, investment uh, function, on, uh, sorry, investment decision uh, on the right-hand side, and the level of investment that I have determines the level of capital, which determines the level of profits that I've got in the firm. So the more I invest, the higher the level of profits. And I've drawn this as a function that uh, is steep at first. That's the wrong one. need to have better training this. Steep at first. And then over time, as we invest more, the rate of return starts to fall. So the slope of this line is the rate of return on every extra unit of investment. And I want you to imagine a world in which we're in the EU and firms have decided on a level of investment and that gives a certain level of capital employed in the firm and a certain level of profits. And that's the state in which we were in prior to June 2016. Firms had that view. Now, I want to explain what happens when we inject uncertainty into the system. Now, even if... There are two possible outcomes. One is fear, and one is no fear. Under fear, if fear happened, we would invest less. And the level of investment we'd have is here, and the level of profits we would have is here. Under no fear, where there's a boom in the economy on leaving the European Union, we invest more, and the level of profits is higher. But actually, we don't know today, and we probably don't know for another 10 years, or even longer, which way it's going to go and how it's going to go. So what we have is uncertainty. So rather than being certain about this particular point on the x-axis here, we have two possibilities, a fear and a no fear, period. And what I want you to note is that the, the expectation 
So the average of these two points is here. And if we draw up to that point here, it's not here anymore because the average of those two points, we're losing that bit of the return. The average of those two points is here, which gives a return or capital employed that's at a lower level. And to hit that point in actuality, it means we invest less. The expected return to us when there's uncertainty about the outcomes is less than when we're certain about the outcomes, which means the uncertainty alone leads to a lower level of investment, whether actually it's bad for us or good for us to leave the European Union. And we think this is a major driver of firm behaviour at present. Firms don't know where we're going to end up. The certainty is not valued um, in an uncertain world, and that means that they're investing less. And we're seeing more evidence that that is the case, both for firms hit based here and latent investors in the UK who are deciding to put their foreign direct investment into other countries that have a more certain outcome than the UK. So if that's the case, how do we offset it? Well, if we use the model that the Institute runs, we've got a number of choices. We could have um, government consumption, which is GC, or government investment. The pink and the red lines show you that government investment has a much stronger impact on output than government consumption. And furthermore, the, the response is even stronger if the monetary policymaker accommodates the fiscal expansion. That means, simply speaking, they don't raise interest rates at the same time that there's an increase in fiscal expenditure. And we can plot the responses um, over a number of years, year one all the way out to year 10. But the two critical points to take away is that if we think today there has been a negative impact on investment because of the uncertainty I've just outlined, there's a direct motivation for the government to offset that through some investment of its own. Um, and most of the work that we've done suggests that could have the right form of effect if it is directed to investment rather than government consumption. And indeed, the argument goes even further. We've done work at the Institute recently to understand the level of synchronization in the world economy. We've looked at the dispersion of growth rates in the advanced economies. And what we're seeing in the last 10 or so years is that there are as, there's as little dispersion in growth rates as we, as we have ever seen, suggesting that the commonality, the common growth, is the thing that's driving growth in many of the economies. And that also means the kind of fiscal policy I've outlined will have a stronger impact if countries join hands together and act collectively. What we asked here, as some of our colleagues at the OECD are also using the Institute model, is to understand the impact on the G7 from an individual fiscal shock or one in which all countries operate at the same time. And the grey part of the band tells you the extra oomph you get per pound, dollar, yen, euro. That covers it, right? Yeah. Um, is more, particularly for countries that are more open. For the US that is the least open of all, the collective action matters the least. Does that help us understand some of the US policy choices in the recent past? It probably does. So, let me go back a couple of steps. The uncertainty of trade compression from leaving the European Union 
is reducing firm-level investment, both by domestic firms and overseas firms, as a prima facie case for a government investment response. But if it could get coordinated in some way, perhaps with our European partners, it would have even more impact. Now, I've talked about the impact of investment. Can I tell you something about the regional impact investment? Well, we can. I'll do this graphically, uh, rather, uh, using a map rather than any more chart. I don't think I've got any more complicated diagram. Oh, I have. Oh, gosh. I'll try. I'll, I, might, I might skip it. What we did in the National Review, Economic Review with colleagues at the LSE, um, Dingram, Machen, and Overman, was to understand what the impacts were of leaving the European Union at the regional level. So at the regional level, you can see which uh, regions, by examining firms' export uh, patterns and the extent to which their goods and services can be substituted by firms in Europe will be most strongly affected by trade compression in the event of leaving the European Union. All you need to do is look at two things. Firstly, the whole country isn't painted the same colour, so there are regional impacts. And where they're darker and redder and more orange, the impacts are worse. So these are the bits of the country that trade most heavily with the European Union and produce the kinds of goods and services which the European Union also produces itself. These are the places that would be hit the most by a trade shock. And the argument would therefore follow, if there's going to be help, it's these areas we ought to think about helping. And yet, in the 10 or so years or more, uh, in the 20 years, in fact, leading up to the referendum vote, we had a different type of globalisation shock. I've just talked about the impact of trade compression with the European Union and the impact it might have on the, on the UK. There's actually, in the previous 20 years, been a, a, an immense degree of trade expansion where we've imported goods, a large degree, from the A8, the accession countries in the European Union, and from China. The red and black lines tell you about the import penetration from these two areas. And the black dotted line tells you, almost as a negative function of the other, the fall in the share of employment in manufacturing. And it's possible through econometric techniques used by my colleagues at the Institute, Rebecca Riley and Francesco Foglioni, um, to actually show causality between import penetration and the loss of manufacturing jobs. And therefore, the position is also complicated. I've just argued to you that trade compression is bad for bits of the economy, but also trade expansion in the previous 20 years has been bad for other bits of the economy that have lost jobs. The darker colours are the ones that um, have lost more jobs than the others. Um, and the left-hand side is China, and the right-hand side is the A8. So this is, un this is difficult as a policymaker. Do we respond to those bits of the country that have been shocked and have lost jobs and need reorientation to new industries through education, these black and grey areas that I'm talking about here? Or do we direct policy at the areas that we think will be shocked in the future by trade compression? Well, the sensible response is both. I can't see an argument for ignoring one or the other. The scarring that occurred in the economy in the 1980s with the closing of many parts of the country uh, and their mining industries, are still felt to this day. I think that when places get scarred, it takes a very long time
for them to heal. And surely the vote that we had two years ago was a reflection of some of these impacts on the economy at the regional level that I think we didn't address as policymakers over that period. Now, this is almost too much to ask at this stage. So I'm not even going to explain it terribly well. I simply want you to think of two types of policymakers. A fiscal policymaker who's going to choose their fiscal policy depending on what happens to the policy rate, that's the black line. And a monetary policymaker who's going to choose uh, their bank rate or policy rate depending on how uh, the fiscal policymaker sets their stance. Um, the Y line here is uh, the Y axis, that's the wrong, I'll eventually get this right, there we go. The y-axis here, it, as we go up there, is tighter fiscal policy. And as we go along here, that's tighter monetary policy. The monetary policymaker is saying, essentially, and this is where they're going to be happiest with inflation at target, low interest rates, providing fiscal policy is tight. And the fiscal policymaker is saying, well, I would like there to be looser fiscal policy and even lower interest rates if possible. That's what their bliss point is. But if they can come to some arrangement between them, they can lie on something we call a contract curve here. I've probably gone, do I go back that way? Yes, I do. Oh, forgive me. So all we need to understand when we look at this is that there's a, a monetary policymaker who's deciding where to set bank rate as some function of what the fiscal policymaker does. And there's a fiscal policymaker deciding how loose to set fiscal policy as some function of where interest rates are. And if they can agree, they can get together, have an independent central bank and a chancellor who's sensible or not sensible, or whatever the case may be. You could imagine a world such as this yellow point here that is a world in which we have low interest rates and relatively tight fiscal policy. That's the analytics behind the austerity debate we've been having in the last seven or eight, or eight years. What we've been saying is that providing we run tight fiscal policy, we can have low interest rates. But rather like the um, multiple equilibria chart that I showed at the beginning, this particular point is not very stable. Because if I am here in terms of fiscal policy, which is relatively tight, it's still the case that the monetary policymaker would like even tighter interest rates. At that interest rate, the fiscal policy guy is going to want looser fiscal policy. And if he or she chooses looser fiscal policy, the monetary policymaker is going to want higher interest rates. And we'll end up at this point here, which is the Nash equilibrium. And this is an equilibrium in which we have higher interest rates and looser fiscal policy. And I think I'm beginning to argue that might be preferable. If we had looser fiscal policy driving investment and higher interest rates to give savers a reasonable return for their savings. Might be a better position than this one. Now, to be fair and clear, this may have been the correct response after the financial crisis. Let's not have massive bankruptcies of homeowners. Let's not have large falls in house prices. Let's let a debt adjust. Uh, I'll start again. Let us let debt levels adjust slowly with low interest rates, and that will be better than the counterfactual in which there's a prolonged crash in the economy, which there wasn't. But to get back to normal times might require higher interest rates and looser fiscal policy. Um, I have in the presentation a number of comparisons as to how 
we operated our monetary policy that illustrate the points that I've just made. If you'll forgive me, I'll go through them relatively quickly because they're, they're charts, but all these charts are available on uh, the Gresham webpage forevermore, I believe. So you can, you can look at them at your leisure. What I want to make is the very point that after the financial crisis, economies went to those low interest rate equilibria I was just describing, and we've stayed there almost ever since, that there was a fiscal policy response of sorts with debt in the UK climbing from 40% to, uh, you know, depending on how you measure it, 60, 70 to 80% over this period, and the euro area showing different, similar paths. This is the cross-sectional dispersion of all the countries in the euro area, but very similar responses in terms of fiscal policy. But subsequently, and certainly since 2011, most countries have followed tight fiscal policy to try and convince the financial market that they can continue to sell debt or roll over debt into the future. And that, I think, may have been a sensible response in 2011, but as time goes on, it's looking like a less sensible response, particularly for the UK, that's got this investment gap that I've been persuading you about. Underneath that, immediately after the crisis, we ran this very strong counter-cyclical fiscal policy, and that was helping stabilise the economy to the shocks of the financial crisis. We used the central bank to buy a lot of the debt, keep the price high, and keep yields low, and eventually the euro area did as well. And all these operations were about adjusting to the shock, and the primitive shock, that was the financial crisis shock. That led to this low interest rate, tight fiscal policy juxtaposition or, or, or twin that we've had for this very long period. And so, where are we now based with the UK? We're nearly in the home stretch. We'll finish in around five minutes, leaving time for questions. The referendum line here, second quarter of 2016, has had implications for investment, has um, had implications for growth. And when we look at the path of the UK economy, typically in a macroeconomic story, after a shock, it takes around a year or so for it to impact on the economy. Behaviour is sticky. It doesn't jump. It takes time for people to learn what's going on, to change their plans, to change jobs, to take a view about the future, almost to decide not to move home and transact in a way they would have before the financial crisis. It's not at all surprising that the divergence occurred a year or so later. That's entirely what we would, should have anticipated. But what we can see compared to the rest of the OECD is this divergence, driven by the factors that I've been talking about. There's a long-run, relatively poor performance of the UK, but increasingly as a result of investment, low levels of productivity, um, the need to retrain our workforce, matters I'll return to in a minute, the economy is not responding well to the further compression of trade that's implied by leaving the European Union. The solid lines are the actual behaviour of these economies, and the dotted lines are a forecast, or let me just say that, the most likely central case. And this divergence is persisting. We've got 1% a year divergence, more than 1% a year divergence in here for three years. That's £20 billion a year, £60 billion of lost activity over only three years. That's the cost of the uncertainty that I've outlined in this lecture. And I'm sorry to say, that's real money. 
And the only way we can share those risks is with future generations, is by the government deciding to issue a little bit more debt than it otherwise might have thought in response to the uncertainty that we have in place. There's a, this is more for the students here today, a list of all the different fiscal rules that we've had. Let me say, uh, 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 observing the fiscal rule is more a polite possibility than a probability. They change, so I wouldn't pay a great deal of weight to them. But I think what's here with the fiscal rule is whatever it is, um, it needs to be relaxed. And I think we need to worry less about the structural deficit and more about a path for getting the economy back to where it ought to be. And that requires um, more deficits um, in expectation than we might envisage, but directed more to government investment rather than government consumption. In the UK, this is total managed expenditure. This is the total amount of government expenditure relative to GDP in the post-war period. And it's hovered just below 40%. And in the last few years, it's fallen radically. You can see from 2010, it's fallen from 45% to about 37 or 38%. Uh, and the forecast is it for, to fall even more. But within that forecast, what we're seeing is levels of capital stock in the public sector and wages of the public sector that are precariously below sensible equilibria. So this forecast, we think, is problematic. It might put the public sector under too much strain, given the existing gaps that, that are in place and the shock which is leaving the European Union. And so the Institute, we're projecting that there needs to be some increase in government activity. Uh, the government path is given by the OBR's forecast of around 2% deficits for the next few years. We think it's reasonably safe to climb to 3 to 4% deficits uh, sorry, uh, uh, growth in consumption, not deficit, forgive me, I'm talking about um, consumption, government consumption growth at this point. So 2% a year for the OBR, where we think it's safe to go to 4% a year, which will be doubling the growth rate of government consumption. And by putting that through our own uh, model, that gives um, a level of public debt that is still falling towards the end of the forecast horizon. It's some 86% rather than the 84% that the government is projecting, but we think that would have important uh, impact on overturning some of the dynamics and some of the regional consequences that I've put um, before you today. And where would we prioritise that expenditure? Well, in the transcript that you'll get at the end of the lecture, I give you some policy uh, principles. To address the productivity trap, as I call it, we need to realise that we have entered a bad equilibrium. We need to move monetary and fiscal policy away from simple stabilisation of the economy, worrying less about smoothing aggregate responses, but dealing with the fact that lending is too property-oriented and fiscal policy needs to support public investment, at least on the margin. Policies towards regions, industry and financial policies has got a difficult problem. That's to what extent does it provide transitional support for fading industries, but also for those vulnerable to the compression of trade which leaving the European Union will engender? And what do we do about the fact that the large new productive firms have stopped being so since the financial crisis? What can we do to encourage them to take more risks and develop? And that might require uh, further relationships with universities and research frontier organisations. We shouldn't be shy of developing in a sensible manner the physical infrastructure of roads and rail, 
as well as national broadband capabilities. And we shouldn't fear the building of more houses. Very small release of Greenbelt would have amazing abilities to build housing, make housing more affordable, and lead to better lives for people that don't involve very long commutes. Of course, I'm not talking my own book at this stage. <laughs> we should not be scared of bringing forward plans to develop further education that's technically oriented, uh, that meets the needs of industry, and also develop work-related apprenticeships where possible. Perhaps more difficult of all is the considering the institutional reform of government departments to meet what I'm calling a democratic, democratic deficit posed by, posed by globalization. We've just let it happen. We haven't responded to it, we haven't managed it, we haven't thought about it. We ought to be doing that instead of having interminable debates about how we're going to leave the European Union. This is critical for the future of this country. And the responsibility of firms to think about their employees and the country and the regions in which they live is something that has sadly moved away and off corporate agendas. And I think it's something we should reintroduce where possible. I have now come to the end, where I've had the great fortune to work in the last two years at the National Institute of Economic Social Research. The street, um, a couple of streets along from us, we're just off Smith Square, is Marsham Street. And uh, one of the uh, great offices of state there is the Home Office. And I was wandering outside there the other day, uh, probably a year ago now, in the, re in the February rain. And I noticed inscribed in the pavement outside the Home Office this anonymous quote. And I thought it was remarkable. And I think it bears reading. The British are absorbent. We put our own inventive stamp on all that we encounter. The British are open to all influences. We are a fusion of the best of many languages, cultures, philosophies with which we have come into contact over the centuries. In the age of globalization, most countries are open to outside influences, so why are we different? More flexible, more pragmatic. It is our geographical position, politics, monarchy. It is all of these things, and yet none of these. We are actually British in a very subtle way. Nationalistic, but rarely demonstrating nationalism. We know we are British, and we do not have to show it. However, being British, there will be a multiplicity of opinion on being British about which we will have the right to disagree. It's been a complete pleasure delivering these lectures as the Mercer's um, Professor of Commerce here at Gresham College. I've enjoyed every minute of it. From the first lecture that I gave on the night of the Scottish referendum, I happened to be in Durham that day just to show you how bad I am planning my life. I took a train down from Durham, uh, gave uh, the paper, I had a broken tooth as well, and a uh, Richard may remember that, looking at me askance at this broken toothed man who was about to give a lecture. Um, and uh, I then had to go back to Durham because I had to give a talk in the morning about the impact of the referendum result. Um, my life has been very similar ever since. I, I, I was fortunate to be able to give a lecture um, about uh, the consequences of leaving the European Union, about which the Institute has been remarkably accurate. Also, prior to the election last year, about the problems facing the UK economy, I feel privileged... Um, and very fortunate to have had the opportunity today to outline some of the views that I've been developing on the UK economy, which I must say are fire outside of my area of competence, which is a rather dull set of questions to do with monetary economics. But it's been a wonderful experience. I thank the college, I thank all of its staff, and I thank Richard. Thank you very much.